And I'm so glad to be here with you today. Wonderful day of change in the life of our church. As we move into some new directions and um, with faith and hope. A lot of uh, dreams have preceded this <clears throat> day. A lot of plans, a lot of vision, and particularly a lot of prayer. And for that, uh, all that's happened, we are extremely grateful. It's a time of change. Every time is a time of change. Periods that we call crisis are generally just the normal periods of change speeded up. And the world has times like that. But there are, we're going through change. We're, we're different people right now than we were a week ago. Uh, our bodies change, times change, all sorts of things are going on. It's up to us to determine whether or not we want to be a part of positive or negative change, for there's no way to live life in normal. You put your car in, in neutral, and pretty soon you're just going to coast to a stop. So you've got to either be moving forward or backward, and we've chosen to move forward, and that's why we're into this time of change in the life of our church. That's a little upsetting and difficult for all of us because we're creatures of habit. Reminds me of our pilgrim forefathers who in 1620 uh, crossed the ocean to come to America. And uh, the first year they were here, they established their city, their town. Second year they were here, they established in, uh, a city council or a town council, they called it. Uh, the third year, the town council voted uh, to build a road five miles westward into the wilderness. And the fourth year, they tried to impeach the town council. They said, we don't want to go west. Isn't it amazing? People who, had, who could see across an ocean got to a certain place and they couldn't move five miles. That can happen to church. That can happen to us individually. Get to a certain place and say, okay, I'm going to stop. Church can get to a certain place and say, well, this is it. No, this is not it. We as a church are always to be in the business of moving five miles down the road of ministry to a changing world. Now, we're going to see Vision 2000. We've seen remarkable changes already take place in the life of our church. We're going to see a lot more architecturally and in terms of ministries. But two years from now and five years from now and ten years from now, we need to be moving. We do not need to stay where we are because we need to keep going forward. We need to keep our dreams, keep, to move, keep our dreams moving forward. Our visions, our plans, our prayers. Uh, Jonas Salk, uh, the great developer and discoverer of the Salk vaccine that has saved so many lives and saved so many lives from being crippled, said, I had my share of dreams and my share of nightmares. Um, I've survived my nightmares because of my dreams. Don't let the nightmares keep you from your dreams. Hold fast to your dreams, for when dreams die... Life becomes like a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to your dreams, for when dreams go, life becomes like an empty field frozen with snow. Don't give up on your dreams. Well, we have relived some dreams this past week as we've gone through that education building unpacking things that we have stuck away in there, some of us for up to 40 years. And, uh, well, haven't had that building that long, 35 years we've had it about. And uh, boxes are everywhere. We're having to find places to put things, uh, books and pictures and all kinds of bits. 
And uh, Stephen, our son, was going through some of the boxes that have to do with what I put back there and what we've done in television and all. And he came across some interesting memorabilia. And he came across something in particular, a Western Union telegram. How many of you are old enough to remember Western Union telegram? A lot of you in this room have never seen one of these. You know, uh, today with email and fax and voicemail and... and, uh, you don't see these much anymore, but this used to be the way of communication uh, because it, as J.W. and I were talking about earlier, it followed the railroad. And so you would send a telegram and uh, here's a Western Union telegram. This dates back to the early fifties when I telegraphed my friend Warren Hulgren, who was pastor of the downtown Baptist church at the time, corner of Mesquite and Taylor in Corpus Christi, Texas. Dear Warren, definitely confirmed January 10th through 17th. For both Eddie Nicholson and me, letter follows Bugner Fanning. And I went down there and held a revival for Warren. Then he moved to Tulsa First Baptist Church where he pastored there uh, for 25 years and is still ministering and preaching all over the world. But uh, here's uh, a telegram from the past. It reminded me of a story <laughs> that I want to share with you. And I'm laughing because I've heard the end of the story. And I know it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's about a preacher it's funny to me, at least. It's about a preacher who went to another city years ago in the days of uh, Western Union Telegraph. And he got to this city. He was going there to order a stained glass window for their new church building. And when he got to the town, he had forgotten the scripture verse and the size, the dimensions of the window. So he sent a telegram home saying, send me the scripture verse and the dimensions of the window. Well, he walked around town for about an hour and drank some coffee and then went back to the Western Union office and said, do you have a, do you have a telegram for Reverend Jones, whatever his name was? They said, well, we think so. So a lady went over there and pulled out that telegram and she said, yes, we do. We have one here for you. And it's, she started reading it and fainted. The other woman in there rushed over to see about her friend, checked her and picked up the telegram and she started to faint. She just laid it down there on the counter and the man came around. He thought some horrible disaster had occurred and he kind of crept around the corner of the counter there and picked up the telegram and he read it. For unto us a child is born, 16 feet long and 8 feet wide. (laughs) Signed your wife. Well, I tell you who fainted, and that was the woman. I, 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 uh, anyway, the point of that ridiculous story is this it is important to get the whole story, it's important to know all of the facts that surround the message. And that's true with the Bible and understanding the Bible and understanding what God is saying to us. Some people kind of pick at the Bible like a chicken eats. They take a little here and a little there and a little there and they don't see the cooperative message that God is endeavoring to get across to us through the totality of his son Jesus Christ and through the totality of his word. So it's so important that we get the full message the, the, the before and after and the consequences of it. The meat of the coconut needs to come through because of the surrounding events. For example, we all know John 3.16. Nearly everybody knows John 3.16. 
If you watch football games or golf tournaments, you see somebody there with a sign or a placard saying J, with written on there, J-O period, three colon 16. Half the people watching don't know what it is. They think it's some sort of secret code, but a lot of people do know it represents the scripture, John three sixteen, which we all know, or most of us do anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's true. That's right. But somebody reads that and says, I'm... That that won't apply to me because God doesn't love me. He can't love me. I don't love me. Other people say I'm unlovable. That verse of scripture just doesn't, it's fine for those of you who are sinless and pure and wonderful. But it doesn't work for me. He needs to hear the next verse of the telegram. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. No one is excluded. Here we have throughout the scripture a great eternal truth revealed in Jesus Christ, and it is this, two-pronged. God's unconditional love and the inevitable corollary of that, God's unconditional forgiveness. You are forgiven. I will never remember when the, f- the first light of that truth began to dawn upon me. I thought, I've got to repent in sackcloth and ashes. I've got to pray through, as we used to say, or people used to say. I've got to punish myself. I've got to some way flagellate my soul so that I can somehow earn the forgiveness of God. I remember going to a retreat up at Laity Lodge in the early days of the 60s when Laity Lodge first began. And Nat Tracy was there. Some of you don't know, many of you don't know Nat Tracy, but I know him. He was a Bible teacher at Howard Payne College. That was back in the days when Baptist schools called it Bible uh, teacher, not a religion teacher. But he was a Bible teacher at at, uh, Howard Payne College. And he said, God's love is unconditional And God's forgiveness is unconditional. You are forgiven. Now, in Jesus' ministry, if you read through the four Gospels, there will be a number of things rise to the surface. I believe there are two things that are predominant in the life and the ministry of Jesus as he relates to me and to you, giving us the full story of our need for him. Jesus, first of all, recognizes that all of us have a need for forgiveness. He knows that. And he also knows that his love and his forgiveness is unconditional. Now, when you get that, let that stick in your mind. And then let me show you some scripture, some events in the life of Jesus. The second chapter of the gospel of Mark, some of you will recognize this story. Many of you children in here will know this story. In the second chapter of Mark, it's a story of Jesus speaking in this house and it was just packed with people. There was not room for anybody else to get in there or hardly move. Well, there were four friends of this paralyzed man who wanted to get him into the presence of Jesus and they couldn't get in the door. And Jesus was standing up in this room. I don't have no idea how big it was. Surely it wasn't as large as this room. 
but there were probably 50, 75 people crowded into this, this house. Well, they had flat top houses. Generally, the steps went up the outside. So these four friends carried this man, their friend, up the steps. And then when they got up there, they began to knock a hole in the roof. They knocked a hole in the roof above where Jesus was speaking. Can you imagine what went on in there? All that plaster falling down. And then suddenly here comes a body being lowered right down into the middle of that crowd. And it was this paralyzed man. Well, everybody was just sort of aghast at what was going on. And so you read about in the second chapter of John, uh, of Mark, excuse me. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now the paralytic hadn't said a word, hadn't opened his mouth. Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Right off the bat, your sins are forgiven. Somehow his paralysis was related to something in his life that he had done. Sin does paralyze. It can paralyze relationships. It can paralyze our attitudes. It can paralyze our clear thinking. It can paralyze our living. And it can even reach in, obviously so, and paralyze the human body. That was this man's problem. And so Jesus knew it. And so he went right to the heart of it. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if Jesus was standing here right now and he is here, though he's not here in in physical person, he is here through his Holy Spirit. And he's saying to every one of us in this room, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He did not say to that young man. Now, now, if you'll say to me that you're sorry, If you'll just say to me that you're sorry, if you'll just apologize, I'll forgive you. No conditions. Unconditional forgiveness. Now here's a statement you're going to have to think about for some of you. Forgiveness precedes Repentance. Forgiveness precedes repentance. Here it is right here. Forgiveness creates a feeling of safety. A feeling of safety to open up and pour out all of the stuff that's accumulated in our lives. We feel free to open up our minds and our hearts to Jesus Christ and say, oh Lord, there's still other stuff in my life that needs to be right. He said, that's true. I know it's there. They're forgiven. So let's put it out there. Let's deal with it. Let's dispose of it. You say, Bugner, but don't you know the verse of scripture in 1 John 1, 9? Yes, I know it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But listen, John was writing that to Christians. He was writing that to Christians who had already had their sin, singular, forgiven. They were forgiven. And what they were doing was they were bringing their relationship to Christ up to date. They were saying, here's some things that are not right in my life, Lord. And they've come to my attention because of the work of your spirit or the reading of your word or the the counsel of some friend or pastor. And so I want to get this out on the table. He said, I know it's there and we're going to take it away. Your sins are forgiven. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he should fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds those by his own hand. It's like a trapeze artist that has for years and years, ever since being a child, worked on the high wire. My, they are almost perfect, but occasionally they fall. 
And what happens? There's a net under them to catch them. The net is under you and the net is Jesus Christ. And you and I are trying to live in a way that will be pleasing to him, but sometimes we slip off the wire. And when we do, we fall in the net of God's ongoing, unconditional forgiveness. Our sins are gone. Our sins are forgiven. Look again, a passage of scripture I want to point out to you. 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's a story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I want all the hands of children under six or seven to raise your hand. All the six or seven-year-old children. Under, will you raise your hand? We'll see where you are. How many of you know the song about Zacchaeus? Zac, what was Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was what? I don't want the adults to talk. I want to hear the children. Zacchaeus was what? That is right. I don't, Zacchaeus was a little man. What did that little man do? He climbed a tree. Why did he climb the tree? <laughs> Give that child an A plus, will you? Another one back here. Because he wanted to see Jesus. That's right. Zacchaeus was the hated tax collector. He was a Jew who'd sold out his own people. He had become a tax collector for the Romans. He was a turncoat and a, and a betrayer. He was a kind of Benedict Arnold to them. They didn't like him at all in Jericho. And here he came, he wanted to see Jesus. And he'd heard that Jesus apparently accepted people who had fouled up and uh, who had sold out. And so he tried to get around where he could see Jesus and he couldn't get there, so he climbed up. What kind of tree did he climb? Do any of you remember that? That's right. Sycamore tree. You see why you ought to have your children in Sunday school? And why you ought to have them in children's choirs? For what's that song? I'd, I'd almost sing it. I just don't want to break your heart this morning. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But so he did. He climbed up the tree and Jesus comes walking down the street and all this crowd of people around him and Jesus stops and he looks up at Zacchaeus and I bet Zacchaeus nearly fell out of the tree when Jesus looked up and saw him. He said, oh, my soul, he's got me. He's going to send me to hell right now on the spot. Going to give me polio or something to zap me. I believe Jesus looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus. And when he called his name, he knew he was in for it. He knew he was going to say, Zacchaeus, you sold out your people. You're a worthless guy. You don't even deserve to live. What did he do? You know he didn't do that. He, that is right. I want you to come up here and finish this. Will you? Isn't that beautiful? He said, I want, I want to go home and eat with you. And Zacchaeus nearly fell out of the tree then. And he came down. And I believe Jesus put his arm around him and they walked home. Let me read it to you. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Came down. People all muttered, muttered about it and complained. Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and all I have cheated. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For, this, for the son of man came to seek and to save 
that which was lost. You know what Jesus did right here? He included Zacchaeus. He just reached out and included him. And Jesus did not talk, not in the record here, Jesus did not talk to Zacchaeus about his sins. Zacchaeus talked about his sins. He knew he was forgiven. He knew those sins were gone. And so he could say, Lord, here I want to make amends for it. Here I want to atone for it. I want to, I want to make things right with other people because you have forgiven me. And he started paying people back. The law didn't require that he do that. He didn't have to pay four times that much. He just started throwing money around because he had been included. Listen, I don't know what tree you're up, but you're included. And Jesus called you by name. And he wants to go home and have lunch with you today. Forgiveness. Forgiveness precedes confession and repentance. Forgiveness. You're forgiven. Celebrate it. You're safe in the arms of the Lord. Oh, you're not going to live a sinless life, but you're forgiven. They dragged a woman in front of Jesus, 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. You know her, caught in the very act of adultery. They said, well, you know, Jesus, uh, teachers of the law and all said, Jesus, you know what uh, Moses said, supposed to stone her to death. What do you say? Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. They kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, if any one of you, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and change your life. Forgiven. Forgiven. She didn't ask for it. She didn't say she was sorry. She didn't say anything. Suddenly she was forgiven. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Now, I want you to look at Jesus here. He is simply fantastic. You watch the way he deals with this situation. Here we see Jesus. He knew everybody in that crowd was a sinner. In one way or another, they've sinned, like all of us. He knew every one of them was a sin, sinner. So what he did, well, the way he dealt with this, he went down beneath their defenses. He went down beneath their defenses and he came up and he blindsided them. He came up on the blind side to force them to see what they were unwilling to see. By his questioning and his response he made them see themselves. That's not easy for us to do with our self-centered spiritual myopia. It's always somebody else. I think of it as kind of binocular thinking. When I look through the binoculars through the little end uh, and you see everything that way, you get it focused right. You see everything in the distance real big and expanded. You turn it around and you look through the big end and everything looks small and far away. 
You know, when we look at ourselves, you know which end we look through? We look through the big end. And we look at ourselves and we say, oh, what I've done is small and long ago and far away. And so it's very insignificant. But when we look at each other, we look through the small end and everything they've done gets big and we talk about it and it just fills our whole world. What Jesus was doing there was saying, look through the binoculars at yourself. Begin with yourself. If you're without sin, you start throwing stones at her. Forgiveness precedes repentance. Now I've got to close, but I have got to say a couple of quick things. There were two things that happened everywhere Jesus went. Everywhere Jesus went, two things happened. One was there was an immediate response on the part of people to him. It was inevitable. People either accepted him or rejected him. There was no middle ground. They were either a follower or an enemy. He created a definite response and he still does. You and I really cannot be neutral about Jesus. Neutrality, in fact, is a very vicious form of opposition. You cannot be neutral. Jesus said that. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Uh, Can't be neutral. Someone said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Buckner. I think Jesus was a, a good man. No question about that. He was a good man. And he was a teacher, good teacher. But he was not what you believe him to be, and that is the Son of God, God incarnate in human flesh. Well, I do believe that. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with you on that, but I believe he was a good man and a good teacher. Do you believe a good man and a good teacher would lie? Jesus said, he that sees me has seen the Father. Was he deluded? Was he dreaming? Was he lying? Was he a fraud? Or was he telling the truth? No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just a good man. If, he, if he's just a good man, he's a good man, but he's a liar. He's not a good teacher. A teacher's supposed to tell you the truth. And if you don't believe he's telling the truth when he says I and the Father are one, you, you have in a sense called him a liar. You see, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is you can't be neutral about this man. That's why Pilate in despair cried out, what will I do with this man Jesus? You gotta do something with him. Pilate tried to wash his hands What he needed was to have his heart washed. He needed a cleansing on the inside to accept the forgiveness that this man uh, would give him. Wherever he went, he had a response and he's going to have it today. It's happening right now. You're either saying I will or I won't, I do or I don't, it's going to happen. And the other thing I want to point out about Jesus, everywhere he went, things changed. Everywhere he went, things changed. Blind eyes began to see, dead bodies began to get up, deaf ears began to hear, twisted minds got straightened out, twisted limbs got straightened, loaves and fishes multiplied, water turned to wine, everything he touched was transformed. Everything. And it still happens when his word, however fallibly we are, however frail we are, 
when his word is proclaimed in song and sermon, when it's taught, when his word is shared, things happen. When God's people are praying, things happen. I've seen it. I've seen it. I saw it this morning. I want to tell you about a quick story, a, a quick story about ha- that happened back in the 1950s when we were having these youth revivals all over the country in various places. And a team of us, Ralph Langley and uh, myself and Dick Baker and Jack Robinson, uh, went to Knoxville, Tennessee. Howard Button may have been there too in that meeting. We started in a church about half the, half the size of this and the church was about half full on a rainy Monday night. To make a long story short, by Friday night you couldn't get in. By Sunday we were overflowing. And by Sunday we said we've got to continue the meeting. So Frank Boggs and I stayed over. And the only place we could find was the University of Tennessee Gymnasium that seated 10,000 people. So we moved the revival meeting there. And the, the University of Tennessee allowed us to have it in their gym. I have a picture of it. The center aisle of the revival, there's a great big orange T there uh, for University of Tennessee. So we had... The crowd started coming. By Wednesday, you couldn't get in there. The place was packed. You'd give an invitation. Two to three hundred people would come and make a decision for Christ. It was just incredible, the work of the Spirit of God. Well, Frank Boggs and I went out to the Tennessee School for the Deaf for a service. And Frank sang a magnificent voice, uh, sang at Martha's and My Wedding. We all grew up together in the First Baptist Church. Frank sang, of course, they couldn't hear a word of the, that he was singing. They had, a, had a, a, an interpreter there to sign the words. They couldn't hear Frank. And I spoke and they couldn't hear me. But we invited them to come to the revival. Well, one night during the invitation, these hundreds of people came. We were back in the conference room. And one of the counselors came over and said, Bugner, we need an interpreter. We need somebody to talk. There's some girls here from the Tennessee School for the Deaf. And there was no interpreter with them. So I went out and there were a few hundred people still in there. Fortunately, someone was there, came and interpreted. Those two girls had come to the meeting. They didn't understand a word that was said. They couldn't understand a song that was sung. But when the invitation was given, both of them accepted Christ as their Savior. You know what happened? They heard that word down in their heart. And that's where you and I need to hear it. Because it's not my words that will save you. It's the word of God who will come into your life. And he will sneak in under your defenses if you let him and he will bring light and life to you. That same meeting, one night, a woman was sitting on about the fourth or fifth row, or a little further back, back where A.L. Simmons is. And a woman was sitting there. And the reason I remember her was because the invitation was going on. And suddenly, uh, a man came walking down the equivalent of this aisle right here, came walking down and walked right past her and she just started clapping. Oh, she just nearly fainted. She sat down and she started crying. The woman next to her put her arm around her. I didn't know what it was. Well, what had happened was this. That young man didn't want to come to the revival, so he took his mother and let her out. He went downtown and went to the movie and came back and the invitation was going on. He double parked out there and came in impatiently looking for his mother. Stood there about 30 seconds and the Spirit of God moved in his life and he came forward accepting Christ as his Savior. He didn't hear me. He didn't hear the choir. He didn't hear any testimonies. He didn't hear anything but the most important thing, which was God speaking to his heart. A man came down that aisle this morning, a big man, six, three or four, a huge man, came down and took my hand right here and tears streaming down his face. And he said, God sent me here today to hear that message. I need forgiveness. I said, sir, you have it. You are forgiven. And he said, I need to talk. Well, Al Smith, Dr. Al Smith, our new counselor, 
took him aside uh, to visit with him. Brother Walters, V.D. Walters, was in the prayer room uh, later part of the week, maybe yesterday, Friday or, or yesterday. And he came forward, a young man sitting beside him, Bill, is his name, called the prayer room asking for prayer. And V.D. Walters led that young man to accept Christ as his Savior. And he came forward this morning trusting the Lord. And he called the prayer room to ask for help and he found the Lord. Whenever God's people meet and pray and God's word is proclaimed, God's spirit moves. And that's happening right now. I don't want anyone to move unnecessarily, please. Any unnecessary movement can be a disturbance to someone who may be right now dealing with a life and death situation in their own hearts and lives. There may be a few of you in the back who have business responsibilities that require you to leave. But listen, this most important part of this service was not the singing, not the preaching, not anything compared to what we're doing right now. This is a critical moment for people. And I'll be here to receive you. You may want to be a part of the life of this church. A number of people came this morning saying, I want to move my membership here. I said, what do I have to do to, to do it, Bugner? Just come. That's it. What do I have to do to follow Christ? Trust him in your heart and then confess him before men. That's what you do when you come forward. So I'll be here to greet you and to welcome you. And you're coming into the arms of a loving Christ and you're coming into the fellowship of a loving congregation. We invite you in the name of Christ to come. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Come home. Let's stand and sing.